All right, in our text this morning, we are in a sermon series on overcoming hurdles to faithfulness. And so the image is that of uh, like uh, a track and field event where you've seen the, the hurdles races and uh, people have to jump over them. And of course, you know, what everybody watches the hurdles for is to see who's going to fall, you know, who's going to get tripped up. And uh, we have some amazing athletes that do amazing things with that, with that particular event. But uh, the hurdles are in their way. They can't just run the event. They've got to jump over them. And, and in life, we have a lot of hurdles as well, obstacles, things that we have to face as Christians. And sometimes those obstacles trip us up. Sometimes they sideline Christians. They get them off of the track of faithfulness. We don't want that to happen to any of you. And although we are not perfect, we know that we can grow in our understanding and in our spiritual maturing in this area. And so we've just started this series, um, and uh, we're, we're, we're dealing this morning with the subject of suffering. The title of my message is Christians Rejoice in Our Sufferings. Look again at the verse uh, we just read in verse 2 of Romans chapter 5 where Paul writes, through him, the Lord Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, we, we taught through Romans. It's been several years now since we were in that book. But if you remember how the book of Romans begins, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, all about sin, all about judgment, all about our desperate need for saving. And the fact that we get here to chapter 5, and he is rejoicing or boasting in the hope of the glory of God, that is something quite extraordinary in the context of Romans. This is a man who is conscious that, that he, like all other humans, has sinned, has fallen short of the glory of God, has hated the glory of God, has exchanged the glory of God for idols, and now that he should rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That in and of itself is an amazing thing to stop and think about and remind us of where we were when Jesus saved us and how he's brought us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that's true for all of us who believe, isn't it? Now, from one point of view, someone who might even be an unbeliever could understand why Christians might rejoice in a confidence like this, um, if such confidence was well-founded. And it's understandable that Paul would rejoice in it as he does. But what he says next in verse 3 is even more remarkable, and in some ways to an unbeliever would seem absolutely incredible and frankly absurd. Verse 3, not only that, there's something beyond what he's just said in our Christian experience. What is it? We rejoice in our sufferings. Not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which is amazing, but Christians rejoice in our sufferings. 
Now, we've heard Paul say this kind of thing before, if we've read the New Testament at all. But he also lived this kind of thing, didn't he? Do you remember in Acts chapter 16? He's in jail in Philippi. He is beaten, black and blue. He's there with his friend Silas. And what are they doing at midnight? They are singing praises to God together, rejoicing in their sufferings. So Paul's not speaking in some kind of idealistic way here. He's not getting all worked up in his writing and just being eloquent and flamboyant and just writing something idealistic. This is real life for him. We know in chapter 8, when we get to Romans 8, he will bring us again face-to-face with reality of all the kinds of trials that the Christian life uh, that we experience. And he'll tell us one of the reasons that the Christian believer is able to rejoice in his sufferings is because the Christian knows that he is more than conqueror through him who loved us. He says the same thing to the Philippians. He says the same thing to the Corinthians. And it's not just Paul. 1 Peter chapter 1, which David read in our call to worship this morning, or James chapter 1, or Hebrews chapter 12. The whole Bible is full of this extraordinary message that Christian believers, like you and I, so experience the grace of God as to glory in our infirmities, as to rejoice in our sufferings, Notice Paul doesn't say in our text here, despite his sufferings. In other words, there's not something left to rejoice in, even though I'm suffering. That's not what he says, is it? We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, I'm thankful, as I know many of you are, for human medicine. I'm thankful for all of its advances, most of them. But but even the best of human medicine cannot make you rejoice in your sufferings, friends. There is no pill that you can take that will put a smile on your face as you're going through crisis, as you're going through agony. But this is Paul's testimony. And of course, the great question we're all wanting to ask, right, when we hear him say this is, how on earth is that possible? And thankfully, he breaks it down for us. So I want you to notice three Short things here in our text in these few verses, verses 3 through 5 specifically. And the first is the principle. I want you to see the principle here. He gives us a principle that we should learn. We pick it up in these words in verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing. In other words... Paul is saying that part of the key to learning how to experience joy in your sufferings is because of something that you know. And again, this is not a new idea for Paul. In fact, over in chapter 12, you know these verses. Right where the letter kind of pivots, hinges from the theological over to the more practical in chapter 12, Paul makes sure the Roman Christians understand that life transformation takes place through the renewing of our minds. The things that they know, 
the things that they think about, the things that they meditate on. And we can never hear that in our modern world too often, friends. There's so much that's clamoring for our attention, for us to listen to. We need to listen to what the Lord has for us in his word. So what is it that we need to know? What is it that we need to know? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering for the Christian is productive. Suffering for the Christian is productive. It produces something. And the language he's using here is quite strong language. The idea of, of God at work in and through our suffering, as though our suffering is, is the clay that the potter takes in his hands and shapes and molds as the clay spins around the wheel. Paul wants us to understand there is a divine productivity And the chief instrument in this transformation is suffering. Now, this should not be a surprise to many of us. In fact, if I polled us this morning, I would probably discover, if I asked you how you first came to faith in Jesus Christ, I think we'd find a fairly common testimony among us about how God used some kind of suffering or trial in your life in order to help you see your need of Jesus Christ. It's very common. And just as that is true at the beginning of our Christian life so often, it is also true for the whole of the Christian life, right? Isn't that what Jesus is teaching his disciples over in John 15 about the way in which the Father as the vine dresser, you remember this passage? He comes and he prunes the vine. He cuts off the parts that aren't bearing fruit so that we can bear more fruit. And that's, that fruit there is not talking in John 15 about winning souls. Sometimes we talk about bearing fruit as going out and winning souls. In that context, he's talking about life transformation. He's talking about character transformation and the way the Lord does that. And actually, the word that Paul uses for suffering here in Romans 5 can literally be translated pressure. It's the Greek word flipsis, and it means pressure. The way he uses pressure in our lives, he brings friction into our lives in order that he might more and more and more transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, we know this concept in everyday life. Uh, when we polish uh, a patent leather shoe or we wipe a mirror down with Windex or vinegar or whatever you use or scrub a stainless steel pot that's been cooking and it's got you know, some of that burned stuff in the bottom. We scrub it and we wipe it and we polish it. We apply pressure and friction until we can look at that shiny shoe leather or we can look into a spot-free mirror or we can, we can look at the bottom of a glistening pot and see our reflection back at us and be satisfied. That's a little bit here, I think, of what God is describing to us 
He's working through pressure, through suffering. He's applying pressure until he can see Jesus again, reflecting back through our lives, and he's satisfied. Now listen, the one thing we always want to know when we're suffering is the thing that we don't need to know at all when we're suffering, and it's the answer to the question, why? Why are we suffering? What is God doing? That's not the answer. That's not the question we need the answer to. All we need to know in suffering is that you can rest in this principle. Here's where you can build your bed, make your bed, and you can sleep in it at night. The principle that not one single slice of your father's, the vine dresser, his pruning hands, not one single slice will ever be wasted. It is all for your good. Now that my dad has been in heaven for a while, sometimes I think about him meeting great heroes of the faith. Do you ever do that with people that are gone? Um, eternity will be very interesting, won't it? Uh, really interesting. I had posted a little reflection that someone had written about John Wycliffe on uh, Facebook the other day. Um, it was the anniversary of his being burned at the stake for his horrible crime, you know, what John Wycliffe did that was really bad. He translated the New Testament into English. And for it, he was strangled and burned at the stake. Are you thankful? English, what you're reading. Well, I mentioned to my mom on the phone uh, the other day that perhaps Dad had met John Wycliffe by now. Can you imagine? To sit down with some of these saints who have gone through sufferings of all kinds, and finally in heaven, understand what God was up to in those trials. It will be amazing. But that's the principle. There's something in suffering that we should know. Notice, secondly, the pattern. A principle to learn, and now a pattern to experience. Paul gives us an outline here. It's very clear. I'm glad. He makes it really easy for us. Look what he says there in um, verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. This is God's pattern. He works through suffering, first of all, to produce endurance to produce that ability as the language would suggest here to to be able to keep standing when the pressure is placed on you to be able to take the weight bear the burden and not be crushed by the pressure you know i love to watch the olympic games when they come around I guess we got a couple more years here until uh, the Summer Olympics come around again. But there are so many examples of this kind of endurance. Think of a male gymnast. You ever see them when they're on the rings? Those guys that have got muscles growing on their muscles, you know? They get up on those rings and they do that iron cross. And they hold the rings out like this. And they remain perfectly still. And you know, 
That's not easy to do. You know that every fiber in their being is wanting to let go. And yet they hold it and hold it and hold it. Then uh, there's the weightlifters. Those are giant men as well. Holding those barbells over their head. I'm always amazed. You, see, you know, I, how, I, don't, I don't know the technique of it, but, you know, they do that little jerk thing. They, they, they get it up. You know, they, they kind of they have it like this, and then they kind of push it up, right? And some of these guys, they're holding up this weight, and the bar is bending because of the weight that's on each side of this barbell. And they stand there, resolute, under all that pressure, as long as they have to do it. Think of the marathon runners as they run into the stadium after running 25 miles. And they run their last laps. These people are testing their limits, testing human limits. And they have built up the ability to stand under enormous pressures on their bodies, their muscles, their bones, their joints, and especially their minds. The pain of their training results in their being able to take the strain without wavering, without flinching. You can't learn to endure in the Christian life if your Christian life is surrounded by a protective layer of cotton. If you're just going through life just soft and comfortable, it will never produce endurance. It's only when we are exposed to those things that cross our own designs for our life or that bring pain into our life, our present challenges to our life. It's only then that that gives us the adequate spiritual exercise for our lives to grow strong and for us to be able to endure. Notice the next step in the pattern. Suffering produces endurance, or another way we could say that, pressure produces strength. But then secondly, endurance produces character. It's the kind of idea that Paul uses when he writes about Timothy. Do you remember this? Over in Philippians 2.20, he says this about Timothy to to the Philippian church. I have nobody like him. Think of all the Christians the Apostle Paul knew in that first century. Peter, James, Silas, Barnabas, all these guys that he knew. I have absolutely nobody like him, he says, this young man that he had mentored. He's talking about the way in which the pressures that God brings to bear on our lives in his providence and his goodness produce the thing that may be the greatest need in the evangelical church today. And that is character, proven worth. Because we understand, don't we, brothers and sisters, that we are living in a world 
that is not about producing character. One illustration I came across last week has to do with British schoolchildren. Dr. Carol Craig is the CEO of what's called the Center for Confidence and Well-Being. It's based in Glasgow, Scotland. She's been instructing teachers um, in the schools in the UK because they have a problem that they've been facing. The parents are complaining because the little ones are being given failing grades when they fail. And that's a problem. The poor little children are being told, you don't spell the words that way. It's a problem. You know what she's saying? You know what this lady is saying? She is saying, she's teaching these teachers that the whole self-esteem agenda that originated, of course, in our country in the 1980s is producing a generation of narcissists without any moral fiber or character because nobody ever puts pressure on their lives and says, no, that's wrong. Learn to do it the correct way. And educators are finding that giving all the kids a trophy and not correcting mistakes is adversely affecting their academics. Go figure, right? So now we have a whole generation that says, I have a problem, fix it for me. And tragically, this mindset has even crept into the evangelical church. And it's not uncommon as you travel around this country to see billboards or advertisements, even from churches, that say things like, are you lonely? Are you depressed? Are you struggling? Jesus can fix your problems. Now, of course, there's a sense in which that's correct, right? But there's a sense in which that is horribly wrong-headed too. Yes, Jesus helps us with our sin problem, doesn't he? He justifies believers. Verse 1, the whole foundation of this whole paragraph, since we are justified by faith. He helps us with our sin problem and praise God for that, right? But brothers and sisters, the Jesus that Paul knew gave him more problems than he had before he came to Christ. He was doing just fine. Do you remember? Paul was doing just fine. Well-respected, had all the right pedigree, all the right education, even persecuting those pesky Christians on the side. But when he became a Christian from the day he bowed his knee to Jesus Christ, Paul experienced problem after problem after problem after problem after problem. He lists them. Do you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Let me read it for you. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, 
Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Paul says, Oh, my friends, we got trouble. We got trouble. Why would God do that to Paul? Why would God take someone like that, who is so opposed to him, transform him by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus and then saddle him with what I just read. Why would God do that to somebody like him? Brothers and sisters, because God was utterly determined that this man would be a man of glowing character for Jesus Christ. You see how countercultural all this is, right? The time in which we live, we live in a culture of me-first narcissism. It's everywhere. Unfortunately, sometimes it shows itself in the church, too, because we're sinners. But unless we have a right view of Christian suffering, and we understand what God is up to in our suffering, the church will not produce persevering Christian character in young men and women who will be faithful to the end. This is how it comes. There's a third thing that happens. Pressure produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And then character produces hope. Hope of what? I think the text tells us earlier, doesn't it? Hope of the glory of God. Do you see these two things go together in a narcissistic culture? What I want is comfort from my problems now, and everything else is irrelevant to me. The only things that matter are my satisfaction and the solution to my problems. That's it. But when God works in his children day by day by day, producing endurance, producing character, what begins to emerge from that is a quiet, calm certainty that glory will be ours. Now, how does that calm certainty come? It comes because the Christian begins to understand that Jesus is making him more and more like himself through the suffering of this life and is preparing him for glory. So the real question is, are you and I living to solve our short-term problems indifferent to the world to come? The way Jesus said it in Matthew's Gospel is, are you laying up for yourselves treasures on this earth or treasures in heaven? Are you living 
for the world to come. C.S. Lewis, I think, captured this thought well when he wrote this. Quote, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. The Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next world. He goes on to say, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. I think he's right. And that's why when we meet Christian men and women who have been through much suffering, and I'm looking at a whole bunch of them, when we meet people like that, we often find great hope in them too. This is what he's saying. He's saying character produces hope. It's the hope like Job had. We always go to Job when we talk about suffering, right? You remember, what, you remember how Job suffered. I don't even need to rehearse that. But you remember what he said? Famous verse, Job 23.10. He knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, when he has put the pressure on, I shall come out as gold. That was Job's response. He had hope because he had character, because the Lord had worked endurance in him, all of that through great suffering. Don't you want to be a golden Christian? Now check this out. Go back to verse 1. He says we're justified by faith. Because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, we've obtained access into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you see what he's saying there? When you understand the gospel, when you think it through, you realize justification by faith, you are not guilty before God. The forgiveness of your sins gives you this great guarantee and hope in the glory of God. Now hold that idea for a second and look down at the very next line of thought. He says, our sufferings produce endurance. Our endurance produces, ultimately, hope of glory. Same thing. What's he saying? What God does in the gospel isn't just an abstract, great idea. Justification by faith, peace with God, hope of glory. No. This truth, this gospel goes right through you. Pressure, suffering, endurance, character, hope of glory. God's pattern. Notice thirdly, the priority. Let's think about the priority God has in using this tool of suffering. One of the great Puritan writers, a man named John Owen, wrote this, Affliction is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. It can build you 
or it can break you. So how are you and I going to be sure moving forward from this place Sunday, October 9th, 2022, as we walk out these doors later? How are we going to be sure that this suffering is going to build me instead of break me? Well, of course, by realizing that God has a different set of priorities than we do. In fact, He only really has one priority for your life at the end of the day. To make you like Jesus. That's His priority. We might even dare to say something like, everything else that's a part of God's purpose will take care of itself as long as He makes you like Jesus. Now, do you think that a sinner like you or me can be made like Jesus without tasting a little of the pressure that Jesus tasted? Do you think that if affliction and pressure and suffering are instruments that our Heavenly Father used in the life of His dear Son to make Him what He became, that other instruments will do for us? I don't think so. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross. We're living in a world where people want the problem solved. You know, friends, God isn't all that interested in solving your problems. But God is absolutely committed to making you like Jesus, whatever your problems may be. And when I yield to that priority of our Father then His transforming grace becomes sweet to me instead of bitter. I stop being content with the temporal things of life and I desire to live for what is eternal. I get my eyes and my affections off of earthly things and I put them on heavenly things. One more quote from C.S. Lewis. I love the way he explains this. This idea. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You, you know that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here. Putting on an extra floor there. Running up towers. Making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Isn't that good? I think that's a good visual for what Paul says at the end of verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our bodies have become the residence of God the Spirit. 
and even as suffering is poured out on us through our Christian journey, so God's love is poured out into our hearts as well, reminding us that the hope that's being produced in us will not let us down. It's as good a guarantee as God Himself. Paul wrote it this way to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 30. The Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed. Sealed for what? For the day of redemption. And just the fact that the Holy Spirit has taken residence in your body is a promise a guarantee that that hope that God is producing in you through lots of suffering in your Christian life is a good hope. You can take it to the bank. God will not fail in one of his promises. Our hope of the glory of God is a rock-solid, absolute certainty. The Spirit is our seal. And so this is a great lesson for us to learn, especially for those of us who are suffering right now. And we all suffer, don't we? Many of us secretly and privately, I always hate that. I always hate hearing somebody's been to the hospital and we didn't know. (laughs) We want to know. We want to pray. We want to love. But a lot of us go through things quietly privately, not wanting to make a fuss, not wanting to bother anyone. And we go through suffering in many different ways. But we need to know, know, that whatever the pressures on our lives, they're not out of God's control. He's using them to transform me from what I am to what He wants to make me. And under that pressure... I can grow strong. And under that pressure, Christian character is formed. And under that pressure, a Christ-likeness that nothing in all the world can imitate will be molded in us as we yield to the pattern of our Heavenly Father and hope for the glory to come. I'm going to ask the praise team to return. We're going to sing a final benediction here in just a few moments. While they're coming, think about a couple takeaways from this little paragraph in Paul's letter to the Romans. First of all, doesn't this knowledge help you prepare for suffering that's still to come? Doesn't it? Shouldn't it provide a measure of comfort and encouragement to you? It doesn't take the pain away. But it brings the joy on. Doesn't that seem odd? To be able to experience both joy and pain at the same time? It certainly should seem odd to the lost world who watches us go through suffering. But it's the Christian reality. When I think of the glory, when I think of the glory that our brother Larry Roth is experiencing today, 
It brings me joy. Even as we miss him. For a little while. Until we join him there. One other thing I want to mention. This whole rejoicing in our sufferings thing doesn't happen overnight. It's okay with you struggle. It's okay if you struggle with this idea when you're suffering. This is something we learn little by little, from trial to trial, as the Spirit works on our heart to make us like Jesus, pruning the vine, shaping the clay. Since we moved here in 2008, most of you know my wife Deborah has had a couple major surgeries that affected our lives for quite a while in each case. But I will tell you this, learning the truth that we've studied this morning helped us, I think, manage the second surgery and its aftermath even better than we did the first. Not that there wasn't pain. Not that there wasn't dark and difficult days. Oh, I remember. But our minds were stronger and gladder the second time around because we learned these truths a little more with each trial. And many of you could share similar stories, couldn't you? I could share many of your stories because I've seen God do this work in your lives too. It may not make sense to the world, but that's kind of the whole idea, isn't it? We belong to another kingdom. God's ways are not our ways. They're better. Paul put it to this way to the Corinthians. You know these words. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And of course, our greatest example, the Lord Jesus, is described this way by the writer of Hebrews. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Think about that. Joy on a cross. Enduring and despising at the same time. Why? Because his, through his suffering, as the writer of Hebrews says, he would bring many sons and totters to glory. That's our hope. And that's my time. <laughs> if you're here this morning and you don't know our Jesus, oh, I don't even know how you make it through life without the hope, the strength, the love, that he gives us. I trust you'll come to know him today. If you'd like some help, 
becoming a follower of Jesus when this service concludes in just a moment, if I can get through it. Slip over here to the corner of the sanctuary in the little cubicle there where we'll have a Bible counselor who will open the Bible and show you how you can begin to follow Jesus from his word. We'd love nothing more than to introduce you to the hope of glory, to the justification by faith that can be yours because Jesus hung on a tree with joy for you and me.